0: Matthew chapter 10 is where we are tonight. We're going to read beginning at verse 24 down to verse 33. Matthew chapter 10, we return to a passage that we began examining this morning. We read beginning at verse 24. This is the Word of God. This is what our Lord said. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher, and the slave... Like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed, and hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light, and what you hear whispered in your ear, Proclaim upon the housetop, and do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for an Asarion, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Let's ask our God's blessing on the time and His word tonight. Lord, we rest in the truths that we've sung tonight. We rest in the knowledge of your love for us, your faithfulness to your own saving purposes, your faithfulness to complete in us that which you have begun. That we know you and love you is explained by you, and that we continue with you is explained by you, and that we will one day be presented before you spotless is explained by you. And so our trust and our rest is found in you. Thank you for faithful brothers and sisters who are here tonight. Thank you, Lord, for your good work in their lives. I know that we have gathered in a myriad of spiritual conditions and physical circumstances, some are here tonight, Lord, with sorrow, some are here with joy, some are here facing obstacles, some are here rejoicing that it seems like smooth sailing at the present, and in every place where we have met with your word tonight, I know that your word is sufficient for the need, sufficient, Lord, to make us the people you would have us to be today, sufficient to prepare us to be the people you would have us to be tomorrow. So we look to you and we ask your spirit to be at work in our hearts with the sword of the word of God in this next hour. We will give you thanks and praise for what you do in our hearts, in our lives, in Jesus' name, amen. When we follow our Lord's instructions for ministry, opposition is certain to follow. And when we meet with the opposition that certainly follows faithfulness in ministry, we are certain to meet with a temptation. And the temptation that we meet with whenever we face opposition, whenever we face persecution, is the temptation to be afraid. Afraid of those who threaten us. Afraid of those who are not shy to announce that they mean us harm. To fear men, to fear flesh and blood instead of fearing God, instead of trusting in His care for us. This is the temptation that we will face as we strive to be faithful in ministry because opposition will certainly come and fear is what is accessed when persecution arrives. This is the power of persecution. It is that it accesses Man's fears. This is always the aim of persecution. It is intimidation. How would the Lord have us to respond? Or to put it in these terms, how are we to have our fear rightly focused? In verse 28, there's a comparison made. It says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him. Who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell? Do not fear your persecutors, fear God. So, how do we live our lives that way? How do we live our lives with our fear rightly focused? Not fearing man, but fearing the Lord. And we began this morning looking at five things we must remember and five things we must practice if our fear is to be rightly focused. This morning we looked at the first two. We saw that if our fear is to be rightly focused, we must believe Christ regarding future illumination. There's a great illumination day on on the calendar of God when everything will be brought into the light and justice will be done. Everything will be clear, unmistakable both in terms of what has been true righteousness and in terms of what has been unrighteousness. In terms of what will be punished and in terms of what will be rewarded, everything will be made clear. Verse 26 says, Therefore do not fear them, for, because, there's nothing concealed that will not be revealed, nothing hidden that will not be known. If you know that those who oppose Christ, oppose the truth, oppose the church, will one day be proven to be fools, going to give an account to the Son of God for the harm that they have done, why would you fear them? Why would you be intimidated by them? Why would you envy them? If you are truly convinced that you stand in the right place in Jesus Christ, that you stand on solid ground in the truth of God's Word, why would you be ashamed of the truth of your Savior, of the pathway that the Word of God would lead us in? Why would you be ashamed of these things? So if our fear is to be rightly focused, we have to remember the future. We have to be like Asaph in Psalm 73, we have to enter into the sanctuary of God and remember their end, those evil, wicked people who seem to be prospering in the moment while the people of God seem to be suffering in the moment. We have to look to the end with God's help and realize what our true position is in this world so that we don't envy them. We are thankful to God for what He's done in our lives and where we stand. Second, if our fear is to be rightly focused, we must obey Christ regarding present illumination. There's an illumination that belongs to the future. Justice will be done, but there's an illumination that belongs to the present, and that represents a responsibility we've been given. We have been given Christ's words. They are light. They are life. And it is our responsibility to proclaim the truth publicly. Not ashamed of his words, proclaiming his words, heralding his words, preaching his words in public. Verse 27, Jesus says, what I tell you. Those are his words. What I tell you, what I give to you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. They've been trained by the Lord Jesus Christ in intimate settings, one-on-one settings, face-to-face settings. They've learned from Him, had things explained to them, applied to their lives. Now what they've been learning in this close-up encounter of discipleship, they are to take to the world. And even to this day, we gather in settings like this to learn the Word of God, but the Word of God is meant to Go forth from this place, from this people, to the world, wherever you live your lives. The proclamation of the truth is meant to be multiplied one disciple at a time. As you go out into the world where God has planted you, and there you serve as a missionary, there you serve as a proclaimer of the truth. How do you have your fear rightly focused? You remember that you're not only not to be intimidated, you're not to be silenced. And that's what the intimidation is really about. It's about silencing the church, silencing the truth. If there's one thing Satan fears, if there's one thing that the domain of darkness trembles at, it is the thought that the Son of God is being proclaimed in this world, that the truth of God, the light of God is being disseminated in this dark world. That threatens the domain of darkness. And so Satan wants to intimidate you and silence you, and our Lord is commanding us not to be intimidated, and he is commanding us to speak his words in the light, in the open places, from the housetops, wherever the Lord has placed us. Tonight we begin with a third commitment, necessary if our fear is to be rightly focused. Third If our fear is to be rightly focused, then we must believe Christ regarding comparative dangers. We must believe Christ regarding comparative dangers. Verse 28, And do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Two dangers being spoken of in that verse, they are compared. There is a danger represented in man's power. It's a real danger. This is why we find ourselves sometimes intimidated. This is why we are sometimes afraid because the danger is not pretend. It is true to say that persecution inflicts harm upon the church. It's painful when you're opposed for the cause of Christ. It hurts when the sword reaches your own family and divides husband from wife and parents from children and siblings. I mean, this is a painful reality. It's not pretend. And in fact, there is the power in persecution that extends to the point that in some cases, what it means is martyrdom. The loss of your physical life. Do not fear those who kill the body. This is the threat. This is the danger. Not just just the possibility of making your life difficult in the temporal realm, but ending your life in the temporal realm. And yet, as he describes that danger, he notes the limitation that belongs to that danger. They can kill the body, but they are unable to kill the soul. They can do us harm in the temporal realm, but they cannot touch us when it comes to the eternal realm. So that even when you consider the very worst, the worst they can do to us, kill the body, what that becomes for a believer is simply transportation into the very presence of our God. They move us from a world under a curse into the paradise of God. They move us from a place where there is sorrow and heartache and loss into the very presence of our Redeemer where there will be no more tears, no more loss, no more suffering. Which is why we can say along with many verses of Scripture, what can man do to me? What can he really do to me? Even if you take my life, you just have become God's instrument for my graduation. Don't fear them, the Lord Jesus says. And he says, a key to living that out is to remember the comparative danger. But rather, verse 28, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Who is that? That's God. There's a danger represented in man's power, but it's limited. There's a danger represented in God's power, but it is unlimited. God can destroy not just temporally, He can destroy eternally. You do know that hell is a reality. Eternal torment is a reality. There will be one day a resurrection of the dead, unto a second death. Those who die without Christ will be raised from the dead then to be judged and to be cast body and soul into hell where they will remain forever tormented. The believer in Jesus Christ has nothing to fear in that judgment, but the unbeliever has everything to fear in that judgment. And this is the amazing evidence of genuine faith, the people who have nothing to fear in that judgment understand the fearfulness of it. And the people who have everything to fear in that judgment are blind to the fearfulness of it. I mean, even if they acknowledge it, they, they don't, they're not troubled by it to the degree that they turn from their sins to Christ. I'm now talking about lost people. Even if they believe in an everlasting torment, it must not bother them too badly because they don't turn from their sins to God on His terms, that is, in His Son. We have nothing to fear, yet we know it's fearful. The comparative dangers help us to rightly focus our fear on God, not on men. What can man do to me? But look at God's power. It's unlimited. If I'm to be afraid, let me be afraid in that direction. Because his judgment is real. When the Lord Jesus, in the seven letters to the churches in the book of Revelation, when he addressed the church at Smyrna, listen to what he says, Revelation 2.10. He says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. I want you just to stop for a moment and let's sink in what really was happening. Imagine being there, a member of the church at Smyrna on that Lord's Day when that letter was delivered. And with prophetic power, you are told what you're about to go through. The devil is coming against you, church, and some of you will be cast into prison and some of you will suffer to the point of death. And then you would hear in that letter read to your church the voice of the Son of God when he says through that letter, be faithful unto death. And I'll give you the crown of life. Verse 11 says this, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then these wonderful words, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. There is a second death. There is an everlasting death, but you won't be harmed by it. Man can harm you with a material, physical, temporal death, but he can't touch you with the second death. Nothing to fear there. This is the promise made concerning the righteous who are going to be raised from the dead prior to the thousand-year millennial kingdom. When Jesus descends again to the earth, There's going to be a thousand-year kingdom that follows and there will be righteous men and women raised from the dead who enter into that millennial kingdom. Listen to what we read in Revelation 20 verse 4. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. I mean, we know about that. Not, not too many years ago, we would not have really known about that, you know, the, the idea of beheading. But then with the rise of Islam in our world, and as we saw people kidnapped and executed, we saw people beheaded. And our Lord is telling His people, there will come a day when some have been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the Word of God. By the way, why do they behead people? Why such a gruesome way of executing them? Intimidation. Fear, silencing. And those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. They can cut off our heads in the attempt to intimidate us to silence, but we have no reason to fear them because we have no fear of the second death. The second death has no power. And even those who have been beheaded for the cause of Christ and His Word will be raised from the dead bodily and will enter surely, certainly into that thousand-year kingdom and will rule and reign with Christ. That's the future of every single genuine believer in Jesus Christ. Don't be afraid. What can man do to you? You will surely rule and reign with Jesus in the kingdom that is coming. But not so with the unbeliever. When... Christ says, we're to fear Him who's able to destroy both soul and body in hell, that is no idle threat. That is a reality. And those who don't know Christ had better fear it, for one day they will experience it if they die in their sins. Revelation 20 verse 11 says, Then I saw a great white throne, and Him who was seated on it, from His presence earth and sky fled away. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead. Great and small. The somebodies and the nobodies. Great and small. Standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books. According to what they had done. If you don't stand before God in the blood of Jesus Christ, you will stand before him in your deeds and be judged according to the holy, the almighty, holy God's perfect standards. And you were condemned already. This is what you'll discover. You were already condemned. Judged according to what they had done and the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. People already suffering in a place of torment before this day of resurrection, before this day of judgment. They are brought out of that place to stand before their creator. They were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If you're to be afraid, don't fear men who can only kill your body. Fear the one who one day will cast men and women, body and soul, into a place of everlasting torment. Who has the power to destroy people not just temporally, but eternally. Eternal ruin, unending sorrow, unending regret. No hope. No hope of deliverance. No hope of change. Fixed judgment with no end ever in sight will never stop. Fear Him. And believers do fear Him. We do fear Him. And we fear Him because we've believed Him. So that the result is our fear has been transformed from trepidation, though we understand His power, we tremble at His word. Our fear has been transformed from trepidation to reverence. Now, as a believer, we fear God. We understand His power, His judgment. We understand the fearfulness of it, but we reverence Him. The kind of reverence that a subject has for his or her sovereign. He's our king. The kind of reverence that a child has for his or her father. He is our holy father. The kind of reverence that a creature has for his or her creator. He made us. He sustains us. He gives life. He takes it away. He gives blessing. He gives judgment. Don't fear those who can only kill the body. Fear him who can destroy or ruin for eternity. And so if we understand this contrast in power, this contrast in the ability to punish... It helps us focus our fear rightly. There's a the fourth thing we must know and do for to have our fear rightly focused forth. We must believe Christ regarding our value to God. Regarding our value to God, do we believe what He tells us about how He values us, His people? Christ is speaking to His disciples and He says in verse 29, Are not two sparrows sold for an asarian? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Here's the the proof that our fear has been transformed into reverence. Because we're told, verse 28 of the one who is to be feared above all yet he has related himself to us so in a way so that in the very next breath verse 31 we're we're told don't fear understanding how valuable we are to him don't be afraid this is what the forgiveness of our sins does. This is what redemption does. This is what salvation in Christ does. It takes away, we, we sing about it tonight, what does perfect love do? It, it casts out fear. The fear that an unbeliever should have. No, this is a fear that calms our fear. The kind of reverence that knows that God cares for us. Say it another way, it's liberating when you realize there's only one person Fearful enough that it should change the way you live. When you understand that only God should be feared like that, now you are liberated from the fear of man. He talks to us about the minimal worth of a sparrow. Are not two sparrows sold for an Asarian? An Asarian, a Roman coin worth about one sixteenth of a day's wage, which was a denarius. So if a day's wage is a denarius, and this coin was worth one-sixteenth of that, to put it in our terms, if you think about an eight-hour workday, you're talking about two sparrows being sold for 30 minutes, which would mean one sparrow is worth 15 minutes. What if I told you that your value on this planet could be sold for 15 minutes? How valuable are you? Well, about 15 minutes worth of work. I would think you don't feel highly valued at that point. But notice what our Lord says, though they are comparatively relatively without value, verse 29, not one of them falls to the ground without our Father. Not a sparrow dies without the sovereign God of this entire universe, knowing exactly when they fall, where they fall, with His permission, with His, according to His design, His decrees. That creature didn't exist apart from His will. That creature will not die apart from His will. God cares for the animals. He cares for His creatures. Does God care for His creatures? Does He care for the animal world? Matthew six twenty six, look at the birds of the air, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Job thirty eight verse forty one, who prepares for the raven its nourishment? When it's young, cry to God and wander about without food. Psalm 147 verse 9 says, He gives to the beast its food and the young ravens which cry. Psalm 145 verse 15 says, The eyes of all look to thee and thou dost give them their food in due time. Luke 12 24, Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, and they have no storeroom nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than the birds. God cares for His creatures. He feeds them. He takes care of them. Not one of them dies apart from His knowledge, His care, His will. Not even the ones worth 15 minutes of work. They're all cared for. Did you know, by the way, that we are meant to reflect our Creator in our attitude toward animals? We are meant to distinguish the value of an animal from a person how our world fails on that front as we equate animals with human beings. But in this same world, we see people failing on another front to reflect the image of God. And that is, though we are meant to distinguish the value of animals from people, we are still to care for animals when we have them in a way that reflects righteousness. Proverbs 12, verse 10 says, "...whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast. But the mercy of the wicked is cruel. God's people are not cruel. Not toward other people, not even toward beasts. God cares for his creatures. Well, Jesus says, you're not a sparrow. God knows you to the very hairs of your head, verse 30. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. He knows you better than you know you. Now, some of you can get this question correct. How many hairs are on your head? Some of you got it. None, all right. But technically speaking, your nose belongs to your head. So, you know, who knows? Who knows? But this I know, the Lord knows you better than you know you. What he's saying to you is is obvious. I know you perfectly well. I know you right where you are. I know what you're going through. I know what you're facing. When you are tempted to be afraid of these persecutors, don't you know I know you? And so here is the peace-giving conclusion. The very hairs of your head are all numbered, verse 31. So, in light of this, do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Don't you know you have value to me? Jesus says to his disciples. By the way, this is where we are meant to derive our sense of value. This is where you see another great divide between the way lost humanity thinks and saved humanity thinks. What gives you a sense of value? We are not valuable because we're so great in and of ourselves. We're not great, we're but dust, we're like a breath. Here for a moment, then gone. That's not what explains our sense of value. Not valuable because God needs us, because He doesn't need us. Not valuable because the world needs us, because the world doesn't need us. I know my wife loves me. I know my children and grandchildren love me. I know this church loves me. But if I go out of existence tomorrow, the world goes on. My wife goes on. My children go on. My grandchildren go on. This church goes on. The world doesn't need me. Not valuable because of what we accomplish. We have one place where we derive our sense of value. It is because someone who is worthy of all honor, all praise, all service, set his love on us. That's where we get our sense of value. God says, I'm valuable to Him. And it's a value not explained by me. It's explained by Him. It's explained by His love and His grace and His mercy and His kindness. But it's real. I am valuable to Him. I didn't earn it. I don't deserve it. I don't explain it. But I have it. I'm valuable to Him. Would God let me suffer alone? Do I suffer outside his sight? Am I persecuted without his concern? Is he powerless to help me? He's so powerful, he's he's going to punish people, body and soul forever. He, He doesn't lack power. So if it is his will that I suffer persecution, it is because it is his will. As we've sung tonight, even in the things that make me sorrowful, it's for his glory, it's for my good. For the furtherance of his work. Do I believe this? If I do, it sets me free. Not to be afraid of men, but to fear him. So to to rightly focus my fear, I must be convinced of a future day of illumination. It will all be made clear. It will all be seen in the end. I'm standing in the right place. You're standing in the right place. Be convinced of that right now. So you're not intimidated. You're not ashamed. And I've been given a present responsibility to declare the words of light, the words of God, the things given to us in private settings, and personal settings, take it to the world. Responsibility for proclamation. I've been given that. And I'm convinced that only God is worthy to be feared in light of, of His power and ability. He alone is to be feared in a way that would change my course. Not men, but Him I must be convinced that He loves me and He cares for me. And I will never suffer anything by myself. And if it is His plan for me to suffer, it's a good plan. It will be painful in the present, but I'll see one day that it was for my holiness, for His glory and for my good and the good of others. Last thing, the fifth thing if we're to have our fear rightly focused, we must believe Christ regarding the fruit of fellowship. We must believe Christ regarding the fruit of fellowship. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men... I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. This is about fellowship. This is about relationship. Do you really have a relationship with the Son of God? Do you really know him? Does he really know you? Do these truths apply to you? Can you live this God-fearing life? Can you truly be free from the fear of men? What he's saying to us is that one, one day, that future day of identification, identifying those who truly have fellowship with him, depart from me, you that work iniquity, I never knew you, versus enter into the kingdom prepared for you before the earth was made. The difference between those two groups is that those who really have fellowship with Jesus cannot. Live the life of cowards. It's not just true to say we should not be cowardly. It is true to say we we cannot be cowardly. Regeneration makes it impossible. The presence of the Spirit of God makes it impossible. The knowledge of the truth. We don't know where where your courage comes from. It comes from being convinced that truth is truth. Do you want to go away also? John chapter 6. Do you want to go away also? Where do we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. There's nowhere else for me to go. And when the Lord brings you into fellowship with his son and brings you into the light and grants you eternal life, there's nowhere else for you to go. And so you cannot be a coward. Not in any kind of final sense. Not in any kind of characteristic sense. In fact, the Bible is very clear. Revelation chapter 21 verse 8 says this, But as for the cowardly, Delos is the word, cowardly, fearful. Its origin is from the word deos, which is fear. Delos, cowardly, fearful. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars... Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Isn't it amazing that in a list in which there are murderers and sexually immoral people and sorcerers and idolaters and liars, there are cowards, people unwilling to identify themselves with Jesus among men. People who turn their back on Jesus for self-preservation. That's not a believer. Can God's people be fearful? Yes. Can God's people find themselves intimidated? Yes. Can God's people be cowardly temporarily? Yes. Who comes to your mind? Peter. Three times, and with swearing, he says he doesn't know Jesus. But Peter was no Judas, was he? And the Lord didn't let go of Peter, did he? By the way, if you want to ask why you won't be a coward, it's because the Lord Jesus has taken hold of you and he won't let go. So it is his grace, his mercy, his power that will explain your courage. It is his transforming work in your life that will explain your courage. You don't, know how, you don't have to know right now how you're going to stand one day before a judge or a court or a guillotine or anything else. You don't have to figure that all out because the Lord is with you and will not let go of you. He will sustain you. But that's the point, you see. This demonstrates true fellowship with Christ. He won't let you be a coward. Not in any permanent final sense. You will not deny Jesus. You will not walk away from Him. You will not be an apostate. You will not be a Judas because of the grace of God. And you notice this is universally true. I mean, this is really powerful when he says, Everyone who confesses me before men, I, also, I will also confess him before, before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever, anybody, everybody who denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. We dare not think that that will be true of us, you know, this identification with Jesus in our own strength. This is what Peter said, everybody else may walk away from you, Lord, but not me. If I have to die with you, I will. And he meant it, and he was sincere. But Christ gave permission for Peter to be sifted like wheat, yet prayed for his faith that it would not fail. Because Peter needed to be acquainted with the source of his strength, and the source of his strength was not himself. It's God. D.A. Carson wrote this, A necessary criterion for being a disciple of Jesus is to acknowledge him publicly. By the way, quick thought, this gets to the issue of baptism, doesn't it? I mean, if I'm not willing to be publicly identified with Jesus in a baptistry, What makes me think I'll publicly identify myself with Jesus at a burning stake? Believers desire to follow the Lord in baptism. Now, there may be a fear present, but again, this is a fear that one overcomes. He goes on to say, This will vary in boldness, fluency, wisdom, sensitivity, and frequency from believer to believer. But consistently to disown Christ is to be disowned by Christ. Jesus now speaks not of your Father, as in verse 29, but of my Father. In view is His special filial relationship with the Father by which the final destiny of all humanity depends solely on His Word. When Jesus says, my Father, my Father, He's he's once again driving home the point, the only way to have fellowship with God is the Son. The only way to have eternal life is the Son. Carson goes on to say this, the Christological implications of Jesus' words are unavoidable. Jesus makes the entire position of men in the world to come, whether for weal or woe, to depend on their relationship to and attitude toward Him in this present world. Is this a claim which any mere man might have made? Close quote. Where will you stand in eternity? Well, where do you stand with Jesus right now? Where do you stand in your relationship with Him before a watching world, before a hateful world, before a persecuting world? Where will you stand with Him? I can ask you this way. Does your relationship to Jesus in this present world, right this moment, demonstrate that you are someone whom Christ will acknowledge in the world to come? Because I really believe there are many, many, many people in our churches who spend much of their life denying Jesus practically. They never make mention of Him. They never identify themselves with Him. At every point where they could stand with Him, they turn and run. They are cowards again and again and again. Yet if you ask them where they're going to spend eternity, they envision a day where Jesus will say, that one is mine. They've denied Him all their lives, but think He will own them in the judgment. And we are being warned this isn't true. Where there's true fellowship with Christ, you cannot be cowardly. So, is your fear rightly focused? As you've listened to this today and you examine where your life is this day, where is there the need for repentance? Confession of sin. Believing your Savior. Believing your God. Believing His Word. Where have you been intimidated? Where have you been silenced? Where have you temporarily, because you're a child of God, where have you been playing the coward? What command have you not obeyed because of the fear of man? Maybe the command to be baptized. Will you hear Jesus today? And not fear those who can only harm you temporarily, but fear the one who has the power to destroy eternally. And fear him in a way where there's love that liberates you from the fear of man, that it gives him the sole honor that he deserves to direct your life. Will you do that today? And if you know you don't have that capacity because you don't know Jesus, would you give Him your life today? Would you be saved today? Would you cry out to God's Son today for everlasting life, knowing that the judgment is coming, a great resurrection day, unto life, yes, but unto judgment for some, body and soul, into hell? Would you turn to Christ this day and live? And all of God's people would say, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for both the sweet promises in these verses that are given to us, your people, and the loving warnings that are given to every human being in need of the gospel. We don't really understand how close we all are to forever. Would you help us to see it, Lord? Would you help us to sense it? Would you grant us that knowledge that shakes off our laziness and insensitivity, our love for the status quo, our love for what is comfortable instead of for what's right. Would our remaining days be our best days that we would wholly devote ourselves to you? Thank you for the comforting words that we not only belong to you, Lord, you care for us. You count us to be valuable. That's our sense of value. Thank you that you know us, care about us, take care of us. You care for the creatures that are not made in your image. Certainly you care for those made in your image, and certainly even more you care for those who have been joined to your Son and will share His image. Strengthen us to find our rest and our joy, our peace, and our courage in these truths we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.